Please be seated. So this morning we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 559. This is the conclusion to this strange book. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the big numbers on the page are what we call chapters. The little numbers are what we call verses. Today is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. This is the conclusion to the book. If you were here last week, uh, you heard uh, me going over what was the introduction to the book. Uh, and so we've jumped all the way to the end, uh, but don't worry, I'll summarize it the middle for you. And Stephen made this lovely little box on your handout for you with little summaries of what's going on in the middle. So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, and then we'll pray and look at it together. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Please pray with me. Jesus, you said that everyone who heard your words and did them would be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Jesus, this morning we want to be like that wise man. We want to dig down deep through the sand to build our lives upon your word so that we might survive the many storms of this life, not least the final storm of death itself. Help us, Jesus, this morning to hear your words and to come away eager to do them, where we ask confidently in your name. Amen. German existentialist Franz Kafka said that we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. He said that a book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside of us. I'm a really big fan of P.G. Woodhouse, so I'm not so sure that we should only read these kinds of books. But we saw last week that the book of Ecclesiastes is certainly meant to be one of them. This conclusion that I just read at the end of the book is evaluating for us in an outside kind of way, somebody else commenting on the whole thing. Uh, it's evaluating and it's summarizing the whole book. The book of Ecclesiastes as an axe, chopping up the frozen sea of vanity within us. Uh, one scholar says that in Ecclesiastes, God is giving us a good hard look under the sun, not just to deconstruct the outlook of people who don't believe in God, but also, he says, to develop believing realism. To develop believing realism. You see, the Bible does not try to hide 
from us the painful realities of this world. Uh, it calls us to trust God, but it doesn't just tell us to stop asking questions. Uh, God does not just say to us, because I said so. Uh, the Bible does not just tell us to put on a happy face. What we see in Ecclesiastes and in other places like it in the Bible uh, is the honest representation of many harsh realities, things that we might wish were not actually true, particularly in a society like ours, a society that takes for granted so much wealth and comfort and technology and expertise. In chapter 1, the sage opened by bemoaning the futility of life in this world, what he called a life under the sun. He said that no matter how much you work in this kind of world, no matter how good your intentions, this world will always remain deeply frustrating. And then he says, in the end, death, like a cruel joke, will rob you of all of your accomplishments, and it will leave you to be utterly forgotten as the world carries on its merry way. That's what we covered last week. And if you have come back today, thank you. I'm glad. Uh, in chapter 2, we didn't get to this, but in chapter 2, uh, the sage goes on to show from his own experience that consumption and pleasure and wealth, even wisdom itself, very strikingly, that none of these things can actually satisfy you, uh, no matter how much of them you accumulate. In chapter 3, we hear the famous poem about different times and seasons of life talks about a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh. Uh, I think we often hear that famous poem as some kind of cliche about how change just happens uh, or about the importance of making good decisions. But actually, I think uh, that poem there, chapter three, I think it's actually the sage continuing to hack at us with his axe. Uh, the point there is that we struggle to even know what kind of season we're living in, uh, let alone to actually be able to control them. At the end of chapter 3, and then again throughout the whole book, you hear the sage's dark, haunting questions about the afterlife. In his own Old Testament context, before Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the sage of Ecclesiastes did not know very much about what happens when we die. And so especially in the earlier parts of the book, he observes over and over that the suffocating silence of death is not just the common lot for both animals and people, but that it's also the common lot for the righteous and the unrighteous. And so he wonders how and if there can be any real justice in this world under the sun, if everybody at the end of the day dies and no one remembers them. In chapters 4 and 5, he bemoans the breakdown of community, especially the incessant oppression of the weak by the powerful, and he warns us about the danger of isolating ourselves from other people. And then he picks up this theme of oppression again in chapters 8 and 9 as he wields the axe against our tendency to idolize politics and political leaders. Uh, the sage shows us that these leaders are prone to foolishness and evil like everybody else but that because of their power and their status and their weaponry, they have a profound ability and even a tendency to do enormous harm to the world. Chapter 5 opens with something of an interlude. This is kind of the heart of the whole book, uh, where he's anticipating the closing paragraph that I just read to you. Uh, in chapter 5, we're reminded that all of life, 
in all of its darkness. All of life is to be lived with honesty and humility and integrity before God. No matter how baffled we might be by his rule, uh, because he's never fooled by empty, hypocritical religion. Uh, then in chapters 5 and 6, he keeps chopping away at all the hope that we put into wealth and possessions and status and family. He reminds us that you can easily lose all of it uh, and that even if you are somehow successful and able to accumulate all these things and have them, uh, that is no guarantee that you will be happy with them or even able to enjoy them. In chapter 7 and 9, he teaches us that if we refuse to face our mortality and our weakness and our frailty, we will not gain the wisdom that we need and we will not live well in this world. He reminds us that all of us are going to die, no matter how successful, no matter how careful we might be, and that that should give us a constant sobriety in the present as we wait for it. Uh, in one of his most shockingly countercultural statements, he argues that it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. And yet, in the last three chapters of the book, chapters 10 to 12, he shows us that this honest acceptance of our mortality should not paralyze us, but rather it should free us. It should free us, he says, to take risks. It should free us to enjoy even the very simple things of this world because we know that we are living and dying in the hands of our wise creator. And so in all these ways, the sage of Ecclesiastes has been hacking away at the ice in our hearts. Uh, it is not fun to be chopped apart. But then listen to how this conclusion at the end of chapter 12 describes what he's been up to. And this is what I'm calling the sage's task. Again, it says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And so as painful and disruptive as this book is meant to be, we need to remember that it's coming from somebody who, even though he didn't know everything that we now know in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, this is somebody who is still very wise. Uh, the conclusion says that these are not the scattered-brained rantings of a madman, but that all of this has been very carefully arranged. It's intended to give us knowledge. The sage has been sharing something profoundly real, as uncomfortable as it might be. And so we need to listen to him. And notice too here, that his words are described not only as truthful, but also as delightful. Not merely truthful, as in God saying to us, eat your Brussels sprouts, they're good for you. It's not just truthful, but they're also pleasant. Uh, even if at some level they're painful. Our society tends to see pleasure and capital T, truth, as mutually exclusive. We think that pleasure and freedom are to be found in the abandonment of universal truth, or at least the claim to have universal truth. We say that true happiness can only be found in discovering and speaking and living my truth, no matter how much it contradicts the reality of creation or of somebody else's truth, not least God's truth. 
But here you see that truth and delight are a package deal. If we veer from the truth of God, the truth of his world, the truth of his law, we will always end up crashing into the ditch of misery and bitterness. We reject God. We reject his word. We reject the reality of his world to our own great harm. And so that's the sage's task. Real wisdom, real knowledge that is both true and in the end, delightful. But look at verse 11 where you shift from his task to his God. The sage's God. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Uh, You remember from last week what goads are? Sharp sticks to poke animals get them to go where you want them to go. And so he's saying, on the one hand, the truths of wisdom are like goads. They move you in the right direction, even though they are uncomfortable and painful. But on the other hand, he says, the truths of wisdom are also like nails in the wall. They give you stability over the long term. You can hang your life on them, so to speak. Our world, in its rejection of God's wisdom, has neither direction nor stability. People are frantically flitting about from desire to desire, from bed to bed, from holiday to holiday, with no overarching purpose in front of us, no foundational reality beneath us. But here, God is offering to us direction and stability through the delightful truths of his wisdom. And we're reminded here that they come from one shepherd. Truth and pleasure and direction and meaning. He's saying that none of these can be constructed from the ground up by ourselves and by our own efforts. They come down to us from our creator, from our shepherd, a shepherd who's made us to flourish under his care and his protection. At the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of chapter 5, he talks about how God has given us everything to enjoy and that we are here to uh, enjoy the simple things of life that he's provided for us. At the heart of Ecclesiastes, as dark as it is, is this reminder that God is generous, that he's a giver. Here at the end, he's called a shepherd. He cares for us. Uh, King David famously writes in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, Not just a shepherd or the shepherd or our shepherd, but my shepherd. That he leads each and every one of his people to health and safety, even as he also walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by all of our enemies, right where we can see them. For David, his present experience of danger and death in the valley does not lead him to conclude that God must not really be my shepherd after all. But rather, it leads him to trust God even more. And so also, our present experience of the world's futility and vanity, it should lead us with the sage here to trust in God as the one shepherd. The one shepherd who really is caring for us, even if we can't and won't make sense of it all. Even if we don't understand 
why is he taking me down into the valley instead of up on top of those mountains over there where I'd really like to be? Jesus himself identifies himself with this divine shepherd in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Jesus does not just say, I am a good shepherd, but he says, I am the good shepherd. He's drawing on all kinds of imagery from all over the Old Testament where God talks about himself as the shepherd of his people. Jesus says, I'm the one shepherd of Ecclesiastes, guiding us by and with his wisdom in perfect, caring knowledge of anybody who trusts in him. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You see what he's saying? The one shepherd, great wisdom and power and guidance. The one shepherd has died to protect his little sheep. He's risen from the dead in victory to preserve us through every valley in this vain world under the sun. Does that encourage you? This is who our God is. He's a shepherd cares for us. So the sage's task has flown out of his understanding of God as the one shepherd. And so in verse 12, he offers us a warning. He says, be careful. Be careful as a beloved sheep. Be careful as a beloved child. He says, writing to his son, my son, be careful. Right? You could hear that as the voice of God himself speaking to us as his children. So be careful that you do not look beyond the wisdom of the one shepherd for your protection and your preservation. He says, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. All of the PhD students said, amen. The knowledge of God as our wise creator should and does free us to explore and to learn and to enjoy his world through pursuits like literature and science and art and craftsmanship and computer programming. But the sage says, don't ever pursue these things as ends in themselves. Do not pursue them independent of your creator. If we lean on our own understanding and learning and expertise apart from God, we will find ourselves on the proverbial hamster wheel that never actually gets us anywhere. We are limited creatures. That's what it means to be a creature, to have limits. And so as limited creatures, we can only find intellectual and spiritual and emotional rest in our unlimited creator. So the sage's task, he says, he wants to give us delightful words of wisdom. The sage is God, the one shepherd from whom we find real direction and real stability. The sage's warning don't look beyond God for these things. Uh, but now the sages charge. This is everything this whole book has been driving toward. It's the ultimate point. It says, the end of the matter, everything's been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so he says, the whole point of all this painful ice chopping is this. 
fear God and obey what he says. Do what he tells you. That's how you navigate life in this futile, frustrated, vaporous world that's been so soberly described throughout Ecclesiastes. The fear of God shows up all over the Bible. It's shown up a few times in Ecclesiastes. But we need to understand that when the Bible talks about fearing God, it does not mean being terrified of God in the sense of running away from Him. It means revering Him. It means honoring Him. It means taking Him seriously for what He is and who He is. That He exists from Himself. That He has always been what He always will be. That He is limitlessly beautiful and holy and wise and good. That he's the source not only of every pleasure in this universe, but that he's the source of our existence itself. French theologian Jacques Ellul says that there's a sense in which the fear of God is actually a kind of perfect courage. A courage to approach God and enjoy his world. Because when you fear God, to the extent that you fear God, that means you don't fear anything else. And so it becomes a courage to go to God. Uh, he goes on to say that however constraining the fear of God might be, there's a real sense in which the fear of God is the opposite of fear. To honor God as God is to find joy and freedom to live in his world. Even as we understand and even embrace the fact that we control so little of it. And fearing God is not just something for the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10 that we must not fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Jesus says instead, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is not a reference to the devil. That is a reference to God. God created hell and cast Satan into it. Jesus says, fear him. Uh, The Apostle Paul says to Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Since we have these promises, referring to the promises of the gospel, since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says that we must approach God in worship with reverence and with awe because he's a consuming fire. So much of contemporary Christianity has diluted God down into little more than our mate or our boyfriend or Siri or chat GPT. He's there when I need him to do what I want, but otherwise I can ignore him. So much of our modern society with all of its affluence and comfort sees little reason to fear God. We take him for granted. We assume that he owes us his blessings and his kindness. Uh, One scholar commenting on Ecclesiastes here and what it means to fear God, says that in the affluent parts of the modern world, our modern deity is tame, leaving us to ourselves. But that is tempting, he says, only because much of the time we think we have heaven on earth. But for many sectors of society, many parts of the world who live on the margins, everything we fear is their present reality. God is their only recourse. And so the End of the book says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God. Take him seriously. Treat him and live before him and in him in light of who he really is. 
the book of Proverbs, uh, closely related to the book of Ecclesiastes, says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Because this is his world, not ours. We are living on his terms. And so that's why fearing the Lord always entails obeying the Lord. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Again, God's wisdom and God's truth, God's commands, as painful as they might be, as costly as they truly can be, they are good gifts. They shape the meaning and the direction and the stability of our lives in a world that has gone mad with pain and futility. The sage says that we should humbly obey God because he will one day bring every one of our thoughts and deeds, even the secret ones, into judgment. Everything is going to be laid bare before him one day. And in his perfect goodness and justice, the Bible tells us over and over that he's going to right every wrong. He's going to comfort every victim. Now listen to what I'm about to say because this next paragraph is really important unless you misunderstand what I'm saying. Christians, if you trust in Jesus, Christians do not need to fear God's condemnation because we know that Jesus suffered the curse of the law in our place on the cross. But Christians still should live in light of God's final judgment where he will reveal by the evidence of our very imperfect obedience, he will reveal by that evidence that we really were those who put all of our trust in him. Then at the final judgment, God will take his beloved people who trust in Jesus and who have been, although very imperfectly, obeying him. He will graciously reward us for that very imperfect obedience. Obedience that we give to him because we love him. Because we're grateful for what he's given us. Because we're amazed at how he cares for us. You don't need to be afraid of God's condemnation if you trust in Jesus this morning. But you do need to obey. Your obedience will show that you really are someone who has trusted in Jesus for everything. But notice this. Notice that uh, as Jesus says, he's asked one time, what's the most important law? There's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. Jesus has asked, which one's the, the most important one? Jesus says, here's number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then he says that God's command to love your neighbor as yourself is uh, very closely related to this fundamental command to love God. In other words, you can define the fear of God in terms of the love of God. To know God is to fear God. And to know God is to love God because he's the fountain of all beauty and all goodness. The more you know God, the more you love him with more and more of you. The greatest thing about the life to come that we now know so much about because Jesus has risen from the dead, the greatest thing about heaven, the greatest thing about the new creation is not going to be that many of your friends and family will be there, although that will be wonderful. It will not be that you will have a resurrected body free of sickness. It will not be that you, perhaps, I wonder, may have the superhuman strength to fly from galaxy to galaxy for all of eternity. That's a speculation on my part. The greatest thing about heaven or the new creation 
It's none of those things. The greatest thing about heaven and the new creation is that God is there. That you'll be with him. That you'll see him. That you'll enjoy him. And so as you look forward, I hope, to an eternity of being with God and enjoying God because of everything that Jesus has done for us to get us there, as we look forward to that, we should be living now in this twisted world under the sun for God and before God. He's the one wise shepherd. He's come to us in his son Jesus to suffer under all of this world's misery and futility in our place. As Jesus puts it at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, we need to dig down deep through the shifting sands of this world to build our lives on the rock, the rock of his wisdom. Far beyond a slavish fear, far beyond a perfunctory obedience, we need to seek in God's goodness and grace the power to earnestly love him and obey him. Because this is the end of the matter. The only way that we frail, limited creatures can learn to enjoy all of his gifts as he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning in whatever valleys of darkness each of us may be facing. Help us to love you and trust you. Help us to know that you are the good shepherd who cares for each and every one of your people and all of our struggles, all of our confusion, all of our limits. You are there with us. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning who might not yet know who Jesus is, who may not yet fully trust him. I pray that the futility and the darkness of this world would goad them into seeing your goodness and your love. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen.